This is the History of the World podcast with me, Chris Hasler. And you're listening to Volume 3, The Classical World. Episode 53, The Celts. I've been dreading writing this episode as well as looking forward to it. The Celts have a reputation for being intimidating adversaries on the battlefield. They also now have a reputation for being an intimidating subject matter for historians. The reason is because we think we ought to know more about them than we actually do. This is because they play an incredibly important role in the relationship between the Roman Republic and its neighbours, and also because their descendants and their language are still very much a part of today's world, and today's Celts are very proud of their identity. One of the biggest bones of contention relating to the Celts is that there are differing perspectives on their origins, meaning that historians are not clear about their origins with there being opposing theories. So let's take a look back at what we have learned already. We know that the Gauls of the late 1st millennium BCE that inhabited the lands around the Alps were Celtic. And this is brought to us through the writings of the classical world, both Roman and Greek. So we know that they were widely recognised. We know that they were very active. They were able to migrate due to having a more nomadic nature than the people of the classical world and they were prepared to raid and plunder to get what they needed. Archaeologists look at the site of Laten in the modern country of Switzerland as being geographically and chronologically accurate for the best indicators of Celtic and particularly Gallic cultures typical of those known to the Romans, so it would be sensible to look more closely at this site and try to reach back further into the past from there to see if there are any clues about their origins. Latin. Now this was the Iron Age in Central Europe. Nomadic tribes with only cultural ties to link them were present here and there was no national leadership. Tribes would battle against each other and alongside each other according to the needs of the day. The site of Latin was discovered in the 1850s and was instantly recognised as a site of many artefacts, but it took some time before the importance of this particular site as a key indicator for life and culture in Iron Age Europe was regarded as important as the site at Hallstatt in modern Austria. Thousands of artefacts have been discovered in the decades that followed since the discovery of the site giving us an indication of the nature of the people, including their weaponry, their agricultural tools, their industry and their trade links. 
Archaeologists will then compare their finds to those of other sites to see if they can determine the extent of the culture and how far wide and reaching it was. Archaeologists have recognised cultural links of the Latin culture reaching as far northwest as England and Belgium, north and east to the Czech Republic, Ukraine and Romania, and southwestwards into the lands of Portugal and Spain. The issue that we have is that cultural links of a tribal society, especially during this period and within this particular continent of the world, does not tell us that the lands were ruled by Celts. There is far more fluidity in movement and migration and integration than with other cultures, so we can only talk about characteristics and where they can be found. Debate certainly exists relating to the origins of this culture before Latin. Origins The closely associated Hallstatt culture is closely located to Latin, but it dates back to the Late Bronze Age. Hallstatt culture is therefore regarded as the predecessor to Latin culture. The Hallstatt culture was a culture that developed from the Late Bronze Age and became an Iron Age culture, who utilised large amounts of mined salt, vital for the purpose of food preservation. They would be vital to the Iron Age networks of Europe. The culture that preceded the Hallstatt in Central Europe that existed at the end of the Bronze Age was the Urnfield culture. This culture is distinguished by their tradition of cremating their dead, which was a change from the preceding culture of the Middle Bronze Age, which buried their dead in tumuli, which is another name for burial mounds. Hence the name of this culture was the tumulus culture. Some linguistic experts suggest that these particular Central European cultures spoke a form of proto-Celtic. However, this theory is now being challenged as another school of thought suggests that the Celts actually originated on the Atlantic coastlines of Europe, similar to where the remnants of the Celtic culture can be found to this day. This theory suggests that the proto-Celtic people were actually among the first cultures to migrate from the warmer climates of the Iberian Peninsula during the Neolithic. This also throws a new slant on the whole Proto-Indo-European language origin theory, with the first speakers reaching Western Europe much earlier than speculated. History discusses the migration of the Bell Beaker culture of the 3rd millennium BCE migrating across to the British Isles at the same time of the construction of Stonehenge. It's very interesting to note that the extent of the Bell Beaker culture in Europe is similar to this speculated extent of the Proto-Celts. So it's possible that the earliest inhabitants of Ireland, Scotland and Wales were the ancestors of the earliest Celts. However, there is much in the way of study to take place before we can possibly say this with any degree of certainty. 
The general school of thought in regards to the emergence of the Celtic culture is that it emerged from something in the lands of Central Europe during the Bronze Age, possibly from the Tumulus and the Urnfield cultures and in the form of the Haustat culture. It developed into an Iron Age culture before developing into what we recognise as the Latin culture, who are the culture that the Romans recognised to be the Gauls. The Celtic cultures of the Haustat, Latin and the Gauls has been discovered right the way across the continent from the British Isles and France in the west right the way through the middle of Europe to the Black Sea and the Bosporus Strait in the east with the contingent who made it into Anatolia and settled as the Galatians during the 3rd century BCE. We briefly mentioned the Galatians during the episode on the Diadochi which was episode 21. They were a breakaway group of Celts who terrorised post-Alexander the Great Macedonia before they moved into Anatolia and settled. The name Galatian directly links them to the Gallic culture of the Gauls. The Celtiberians present an interesting link to the Celts of Central Europe with their language seemingly closely connected to the other Celtic languages but represented using their own form of alphabetic script seemingly more closely related to the Mediterranean children alphabets of the Phoenicians such as the Greek and Latin alphabets. We see a notable difference in the artistic styles of Celtiberians, showing them to be a disparate group of Celts. But whether they branched off from the Latin is fiercely debated as it seems much more likely that they branched off from Central European cultures at a much earlier time. The Celtiberians would be the peoples that the Carthaginians encountered when they landed in Hispania. So the origin of the Celts is very hazy and open to debate among scholars. But we certainly discover a lot about their early story from the Romans and certainly from interactions with Julius Caesar when he was campaigning in Gaul. Lifestyle The warrior culture of the Celts probably emerged as a result of pressures that Celtic tribes imposed on each other. As populations increased, the scramble for resources heightened and unsurprisingly those settlements that had a more organised and stratified society with an organised military would have prospered over their weaker neighbours. Celtic villagers would build fortifications around their settlements to prevent attacks too. Those settlements on hilltops would undoubtedly have an advantage and this is where we can recognise the well-known hill forts of Central Europe of the first millennium BCE. One of the best references of a Celtic hill fort is an oppidum at the modern German municipality of Manching. Archaeologically, we don't have as much to refer to at Manking as we might like. The hasty construction of an airfield just before the Second World War in the 20th century has robbed archaeologists of much opportunity to investigate this site. 
We do believe that there could have been as many as 10,000 residents at this site and it would have been protected by something that Julius Caesar himself would describe as Gallic walls. Oppidum is a word that the Romans used to describe the Celtic hill forts. We can be somewhat confident that the Celtic tribes would have been led by a chief who might even stylise himself as a king. The military leaders would have been the next most important members of the Celtic societies who would have been vital in assisting the tribal chief in maintaining the status of the tribe among its rivals. Those members of the tribes who were particularly academic may have been the priestly class of the tribes. These would be the Celtic Druids who upheld the religion of the Celts and would have been exempt from military service. Many of the common people of Celtic societies would have been involved in the agricultural requirements of the settlement, so many of them would have been farmers assisted by a slave class of workers. Roman scriptures may have us believe that barbarian tribes were uncivilised, but this couldn't be further from the truth. They just lived a more traditional lifestyle without all the lavishness, academia and emotion of the classical world. When the Greeks set up the trading post of Massalia, which is the modern city of Marseille, the Celts would have certainly have been connected to the trade routes associated. After the Roman expansion of the first millennium BCE, we can identify both Roman and Celtic coinage at sites such as Manching. So we must not forget that despite all of our best attempts to talk about warfare between Romans and barbarians, there was always a necessity for trade between the cultures. Art Celtic artwork is one of the fundamental things that historians have used to distinguish Celtic culture and make connection between sites around Europe. As we mentioned before, the Celtiberians didn't appear to have the same artwork connections to the rest of the Celtic world, even though there was certainly a linguistic connection. It's possible that the Celts suffered ultimately due to being sandwiched between so many other cultures, but during their heyday, their artwork demonstrates its connections to the Etruscans and the Mediterranean cultures. Early artwork can be demonstrated through the grave goods of the Haustat chiefs, including pottery and jewellery. Celtic artwork often contained animals that were often so typical of pagan societies, and we can certainly see evidence of animal sacrifice which is also an important aspect of paganism. Serpents, wild boars and raptors were particularly popular with the Celts, which reflected the aggressiveness of their warrior culture. One of the most incredible finds of Celtic art actually belongs to a warrior's helmet, which carries a huge bird of prey on top. The wings of the bird are hinged, which means that when this warrior was charging towards you, the bird's wings would seem to be flapping to create an intimidating sight. Simple geometric designs were popular with zigzags and spirals being 
popular on pottery and jewellery. Decorative designs on all sorts of metals including gold would have adorned their weaponry and chariots. The most valuable clothing and jewellery would have been worn by the warrior elite who we mentioned earlier as equivalent to the aristocratic class. Despite Celtic talents with portable art such as pottery, we see very little in the way of sculptures and even less in the way of paintings and the blandly coloured pottery that has been found seems to support the fact that painting was comparatively unpopular with the Celts. Religion When we think of Celtic religion, we think of Druids. The Druids were traditionally the religious class of Celtic society and as with many other ancient societies, their priestly class had an upper class standing within their social hierarchy. They would be the best educated of their people, gaining knowledge in many aspects of Celtic tradition and academia and they would make up a very important advisory contingent in the court of their ruler. Their knowledge would be greatly respected. This particular episode, by comparison to the Roman episodes, has been difficult to write, and that is because the Celts from the classical period were largely illiterate, so we have very little in the way of first-hand written artefacts. The Celts are said to have had a very strong tradition of storytelling within their communities, with epic poetry and spiritual tales which should not really be surprising as this was not an innovation of pagan culture of the classical age, but something that we can see as standard tradition within most ancient societies dating right back to the 3rd millennium BCE with such things as the Mesopotamian Epic of Gilgamesh for example, and it is likely that these traditions date back even further. So the Celts had these typical traditions of non-classical ancient societies. Another aspect of Celtic tradition that we can compare to older cultures is their belief in something called the other world, which is similar to the ancient Egyptian belief of an afterlife. Where the Egyptians would mummify their pharaohs in preparation to their safe transition into the afterlife, the Celts would believe in a parallel existence after death in this other world. There the deceased Celts would live alongside their pantheon of deities, including all of the spirits of the known world, which reflects the archaic animistic style of belief often held by many ancient and probably prehistoric societies. Druids would perform their rituals surrounded by nature and things such as oak, and mistletoe would be viewed as sacred, so their spirits would have likely been honoured during these rituals. Both humans and animals were sacrificed to the pantheon of deities, which is something, once again, not uncommon in ancient societies, and also other precious objects would be cast away in waterways and lakes, which were seen as a doorway to the other world. Deities would have also adorned the artwork of the Celts with depictions found on cauldrons and plaques, undoubtedly created for the purpose of religious ceremony. Many objects depicted war scenarios because war was part of Celtic culture. This was one culture that was ready for warfare. 
it's important to point out that Celtic culture is considered to include a very widespread European demographic. The reason I mention this is because we are talking about many tribes over a large area and over a large amount of time. So there are bound to be differences in religious tradition from one side of the Celtic world to the other. So we have to take all of the information mentioned as a very general overview of Celtic religion. We know that Celtic religion in Central Europe became somewhat Romanized after the end of the first millennium BCE. And what we do know is brought to us by classical world writers, that is, those from the academic societies of Rome and Greece. War. The Greek historian called Strabo, who was alive at the turn of the first millennium, stated that the whole Celtic race is obsessed with war. We've mentioned Strabo before as somebody who wrote about his discoveries and theories related to Asiatic cultures, but he wrote about all cultures, past and present, including the Celts. Warfare for the Celts was something that was observed as something that they would do amongst themselves, with the Celtic tribes battling with other Celtic tribes, or Celtic alliances battling against other Celtic alliances. By the time that the classical authors were writing about the Celts, they would discover the defensive hill forts already constructed for protection against each other. In the same way that the priestly class underwent years of training before becoming the Druids, the warrior class would also be trained for years from a young age. They were experts in ironworking, which meant higher quality weapons, and they were a very able horseman. So it was incredibly interesting that we have this image of barbarian tribes as being uncultured, uncivilised and uncouth. This is thanks to the Romans who could not understand the Celtic manner. It was easier for the Romans to view them as somewhat degenerate and lacking the sophistication typical of the Roman realm. The Celts were a much more advanced culture intellectually than we give them credit for and this is partly because the Romans portrayed them as such and partly because it's easier for us to see ancient cultures with low levels of written records as lacking intellect than it is for us to investigate and understand them. The Celts built roads before the Romans and their calendars are said to be more accurate than the early Roman calendars. When the Romans went to war with the Celts, they were met with a force who would not fight in the same organised legions that the Romans did, favouring individual bravery on the battlefield. The Celts could also fight bare naked, which must have been an intimidating sight due to the sheer insanity of it. Celtic warriors would pride themselves on the number of decapitated heads they had collected as prizes from battle. Iron swords and daggers could be kept in bronze and wooden sheaths or scabbards. The warriors would fight on horseback and from chariots and would carry shields for protection. Ceremonial weaponry, shields and headdresses like the one earlier described with the huge bird of prey atop 
of the warrior's helmet have been discovered that give us clues that Celtic warfare was very advanced despite not having the organisation that the Roman legions had. The Celts were happy to fight in their own way. Some Celtic warriors would use face paints to attempt to strike fear into their enemies and this links us up to two other periods described already by this podcast series. We have spoken of how humans may have always used face paints in a way to both distinguish their tribal belonging or even to intimidate their opponents and we could see this link all the way back to volume 1 and the earliest humans. We also see that this links us nicely to the Picts of Northern Scotland in our special episode from 2020 where we described this offshoot of Celtic culture that earned the name Picts specifically for their tendency to paint their faces which would intimidate the Romans of the Empire from capturing the whole of the island of Britannia. The story of the Celts. It would be unfair for me to state the origin of the Celts without any doubt. The Celts, just as is the case with the Romans, the Phoenicians, the Spartans and many other cultures, are full of mystery and speculation. We can suggest that what the Romans encountered and wrote about to the north of their own territory were those Celts linked to the archaeological site of Laten, which together have built the foundations of Celtic identity of ancient times. We know that these cultures had touched Iberia and Britannia to differing degrees, and there is now a big question mark over whether Celtic culture migrated to these areas in the centuries leading up to Latin, or whether the cultures of these lands contributed to the Latin culture that the Romans wrote of as the Gauls, otherwise known as the Celts of Central Europe. The Celts put pressure on the Etruscans from the north during the 4th century BCE and even sacked the city of Rome itself before the Romans paid a ransom for the Celts to leave. Other Celtic tribes would filter into the Balkan Peninsula during this century and battle with the Illyrians and the Greeks. While Celts continued to trouble the northern Roman frontier for many decades, the great Macedonian ruler Alexander the Great would attempt a more diplomatic approach to subdue their aggressions, which is something that Alexander would have had to have taken seriously, with Celts being able to approach Macedonia with relative ease. The relationship between the Romans and the Celts was always tense, and possibly because of the tension caused by the sacking of Rome in 390 BCE. To be honest, many historians actually believe that the sacking took place in 387 BCE after consideration of timelines, but we have always used the traditional date of 390 BCE during this podcast series. It definitely happened and likely had an effect on generations of successors with the Celts often found to be supporting the early enemies of Rome such as the Samnites and the Epirates. The 3rd century BCE saw a number of Celtic tribes spread into Anatolia before being subdued by the Seleucids. They would settle and be known as the Galatian tribes, now somewhat disparate from their Gallic origins. As you would expect from a Celtic race, the Galatians would continue to make war, 
with the Seleucids and the Pergamians. When the Carthaginians waged war with the Romans, many Celts would join the cause. It is suggested that as much as 50% of Hannibal's Carthaginian army were made up of Celts when it invaded Italian territory. The final years of the Roman Republic were very significant for the Celts. There were particular Celtic tribes who had been integrated into Roman territory successfully and would have certainly fought alongside Roman armies too. We must always remember that the Celts were tribal in their nature and did not view themselves as a confederacy. The interest of the tribe was paramount and that could mean aligning with the Romans as well as standing against them. Roman advances were so significant during the 1st century BCE that the Galatians in Asia Minor had been subjugated and it was now a client state of Rome. Spartacus, the gladiator who rose up and fought against his Roman overlords, had a Gallic ally and fellow gladiator as one of his most important military leaders. His gladiatorial nickname was the Undefeated Gaul. His given name was Crixus. However, as we discovered during the Roman episodes regarding Julius Caesar, the Romans marched into Gaul, the land of the Gallic Celts, centred on modern-day France. After many years of campaigning in Gaul and against great Gallic chiefs and leaders such as Cassivellaunus and Vercingetorix, Caesar would subjugate Gaul and the Celtic identity was consumed by Rome or pushed to the fringes of the empire. The Celt-Iberians had been consumed following the battles in Iberia between Rome and Carthage. The various Celt-Iberian uprisings of the 2nd century BCE had been absorbed. In Britannia, the Celtic tribes were further pushed north and west by Roman advances following the conquest of Gaul. Caraticus, chief of the Catuvalauni Celtic tribe in Britannia, tried in vain to evade the advances of the Romans under the rule of Emperor Claudius from the year 43, and even though the Roman conquest of Britannia was somewhat successful with Caraticus being captured, uprisings within captured territory would still take place, and with the most famous one being under Boudicca, the warrior queen of the Iceni tribe. She would stand up against Roman aggression by uniting Celtic tribes of Britannia before being defeated at the Battle of Watling Street in the year 61. The Roman occupation and annexation of southern Britannia meant that the Celts would occupy the unconquered areas of Scotland and Ireland which are the most well-known territories where Celtic culture has prospered and survived right up until the modern day. Christianisation of the Roman Empire would soon spread to the Celtic cultures with missionaries visiting and beginning the conversion from the 5th century. The Celts would develop their own form of Christianity, which controversially differed to a degree from Roman Christianity. Those Celts who occupied Great Britain and Ireland during the Iron Age throughout the Roman occupation of Britannia and the descendants of those peoples who still speak Celtic languages today are called the Insular Celts. To distinguish them 
from the continental Celts of whom we have spoken so much about. The most well-known Celtic languages are Irish and Welsh languages, but the Scottish Gaelic language is also held in high esteem. Among the other surviving Celtic languages are the Manx language, which remains an official language, although somewhat of a heritage language, of the Isle of Man, a small island which is a British dependency and can be found in the Irish Sea between Great Britain and Ireland. The Cornish language still exists in the English county of Cornwall and it is a language which some Cornish residents fight to keep alive. The other Celtic language is actually spoken in the modern country of France but in its far northwest corner in the cultural region of Brittany with the language being called the Breton language. Celtic language and culture is very much alive in the modern world with very many proud associates. There we go. The Celts. Thanks for listening. I'll tell you what, I had to work a little bit harder. I'm not used to that anymore. I had to work a little bit harder this week um, just to get that episode out. I didn't realise how lucky I was getting it with all that stuff about the Romans. is. There's so much literature out there and with the Celts I had to dig a bit deeper, I had to work a bit harder, a bit like the uh, Volume 2 days. Um, I had to dig and dig and dig and get some uh, get some information and try and uh, present it in an interesting way. But hopefully I succeeded, so that's always uh, the... I, I, it felt good once, I, once I'd written it, so uh, I, I'm pleased that I was able to get that episode out. And it is a really fascinating culture, the Celts. And, um, you know, if you, I would imagine there'll be a lot of people that would have been interested in listening to this episode just purely because of the subject matter. So um, it, was, uh, it was good fun to write that episode anyway. Now, as always, uh, we'll get this one out of the way. So um, we always say to you that if you do want to support the podcast, you can do so. Um, you can just go directly to the History of the World um, podcast.com website and make a monthly donation through the Patreon link. Now, um, though, once you've done that, you'll become a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati and you'll qualify for rewards as well, which are all detailed on the Patreon website. And uh, we've got people qualifying for rewards and, and just before New Year I was posting out gift packs to people. So, you know, it really does happen. You really do get these rewards. And um, um, we also have um, a Buy Me A Coffee site. We, it's called Buy Me A Book uh, because that seems to be a little bit more relevant to what we're doing here with the History of the World podcast. But, um, you know, somebody did make a, a quite a sizable donation through that this week um, purely because they wanted me to write a special episode for them. I'm not going to disclose the subject uh, just yet but in the coming months certainly um, we should see that episode and it will join those special episodes that have been uh, requested by people previously such as the episode on the Vassar family um, and the, the episode on the Picts which links in quite nicely to this episode. So if you want to continue learning more about Celtic culture, 
there is a special episode on the Picts. You just scroll down the list of episodes and you should be able to find it. But joining the History of the World uh, podcast Illuminati this week, those people who have signed up to make donations to the podcast itself, we've got Mary Sibayan, we've got Kip Schumann, we've got Emmanuel Giri, we've got Chupacabra Race Team, uh, that apparently however many members there are in that team are, are now all History of the World Podcast Illuminati members, apparently. Uh, we've got Shane, um, who uh, that's Shane Smith, a long-time listener of the podcast, who's now qualified to um, commission a, a podcast episode on the subject of his own choice. We've got Ted Turner as well, and we've got Michael C., all now members of the History of the World podcast Illuminati I can't thank you enough and I can't tell you how much um, your contributions will probably strengthen the podcast uh, going into the future and in future years you know and um, you know potentially this project could grow and grow to the point where I can devote uh, a lot more time to it and you know even publish more episodes and, and really sort of diversify the product of the history of the world podcast so thank you so much to each and every one of you Let's dash through the listener messages this week. Um, Bill Flores wrote in and put, I have seen a few of your podcasts done as YouTube videos. So for a long time, I've been meaning to download the podcast. I finally got around to it. It download, um, I downloaded it on Grover Podcast. Just thought I would mention it because you seem shocked how many places you can get the podcast. That That is true. That is true. I always... Uh, I've always been interested in great stories as a child. It was Star Wars and things like that. Well, yeah, I used to used to love the the original Star Wars films. Uh, but then one day I realised the greatest story is history, all the political intrigue, sibling rivalry, etc. You go into detail enough that I can enjoy the story. But use simple enough language, I don't have to look up what the words mean. So I want to thank you. My f- first podcast I downloaded was a history of English language by kevin stroud fantastic choice of podcast that well done uh he's uh his is a different emphasis on language and culture so the first episode of your podcast i listened to was the indo-european people very similar to his episodes on that i look forward to seeing how you treat the bronze age collapse and the rising of the phoenicians and other classical age cultures from the ashes of the bronze age collapse um, yeah, well, you know, we've we've already done episodes on the late Bronze Age collapse and the Phoenicians, so um, I hope um, you uh, get you get the opportunity to listen to them or even watch them, and um, you know, I hope you enjoy them. So thanks for writing in, Bill. Virginia Riley wrote in and put I put this comment elsewhere before I came across this location. Will you put your podcasts on DVDs? I would be interested in purchasing one or more of the series. Well, I'm a podcaster, so really I don't specialise in in the visual side of things. And and this was also something that Bill, before you, has mentioned in his email. Um, Any of the video footage that you watch isn't actually created by me. They've used my audio uh, track um, over the top of video footage that they've kindly created. Now, it's all above board. It's been done with my authorisation and my blessing. Um, and uh, the man who does it is a gentleman called Nick Barksdale, who's got the most phenomenal 
library of books that I've ever seen like relating to history. I've, I've never seen anything quite like it. Um, he'll never get to read them all in his lifetime, I'm sure, but nonetheless, his passion for history is like is is uh, indisputable, and uh, he um, has kindly done about 20 episodes of of my podcast and turned them into videos and that's where you can enjoy them so um by all means approach nick he's very approachable he's a nice guy and um you know tell him tell him that you you enjoy his work his video work and and maybe he is planning to put them on dvd i don't know um but um yeah certainly nick barksdale the youtube channel is called the study of antiquity and the middle ages go and check it out there's there's so much material on there uh com has put dear chris thanks for being a great historian and storyteller just love the podcast well thank you thank you for that very kind comment uh, what else have we got? We've got Sonali, who's put, Hi Chris, I've been listening to the podcast for about a month now and I've really enjoyed it. I used to find history boring in school, but now I've really started to find it fascinating. Maybe because I am now, it's not just about cramming dates and events, but understanding the big picture of events. I'm a computer science undergrad who wants to read more about history. Since I don't have an educational background in history, I'm lost. Where to start? Which authors to follow? Could you please suggest some books about the history of the world? Hope to get a reply soon. Well, to be honest with you, I think, and and this this can sound like a cop out, but I think um, if it is, if it does sound like a cop out, I, I think we're doing a massive disservice to those people who collaborate and write these incredibly colourful, vibrant, and easy to read reference books that you get now and it like you know they're they're expertly written so there's no reason to feel like you're cheating by not reading a novel style written uh book you know so like i mean for, for me uh, one of the most helpful books that i've ever bought was a book called history year by year which is like a a, a, a nice reference book and it really just covers absolutely everything and um and and i can pinpoint things pretty quickly using that um, if you want to actually read a book, you know Andrew Marr, the um, the journalist, the British journalist, has, has written a, a history of the world, which is entertaining, and um, you know Yeovil Noah Harari's book um, Homo, uh, or it's just called uh, Sa- uh, Sapiens. Sorry, um, his, his follow up book was called Homo Deus, but the the, the original book was just called sapiens that that's one that you, they're books that you can sort of take on in a suitcase with you on holiday and read um but then i think the best book that i've got is is somewhat old now so it's sort of it's getting somewhat out of date but it's still it's still extremely relevant most of the information it's the history of the world um it's a huge book by uh, it's edited by john whitney hall it's a collaborative effort and uh Whitney Hall is no longer with us, uh, but this book certainly still is. So there are plenty of um, books out there that you can get your hands on and and increase your learning capacity about general history, popular history, we like to call it. And um, the the History of the World um, podcast bibliography is also available through the website. So if you go to thehistoryoftheworldpodcast.com, 
click on bibliography, you can see a list of all the books that I've used as a reference for writing all the episodes of the podcast. Thank you very much to everyone who's written in. Um, I'm keeping my voice down a little bit now because I'm recording this very late at night and it's because I've had a bit of a drama at, at home that's prevented me from sort of finishing the podcast. So it's really, it's like really, really late at night now and I, I, don't, I don't like to talk too loud because I'll wake the neighbours up. So um, so that's why I'm speaking rather quietly. So I, I don't suppose you're that used to that. Reviews. Let's listen to some reviews. I've got I've got three from um, different countries this week, and, and not all of them are from the obvious countries. So, uh, firstly, we've got one from B Baller nineteen sixty three from Canada, who's put I'm in heaven. Well done, my friend. You just found this and thought I'm a deep sea. Uh, I'm a deep deep sea diver. That's not what he's written. Uh, he's put I'm a deep diver history buff. I love this general overview of the whole damn thing in chronological order. Well, research history, like, this is truth. Thank you so much, B-Baller. Um, and then we've got Hardnoggin1 from Norway has put, Love history, this is the podcast. The podcast makes complex history understandable. In this, not forgetting to mention in other historians' opinions. Great job, thank you. And then uh, Merioshi... Uh, from Japan has written a review, but thank you for educating us. Growing up in an Arab Muslim country, Morocco, that believes in creationism, our education system doesn't talk about evolution or anything related to it. With your podcast, I got to learn and be freed. Uh, well, look, I think, you know, humans have to trust humans, and um, if, uh, if you present everything, all the information, then... Um, you know, people, you can trust people's intelligence to make their own mind up what they think uh, happened. So um, I'm glad that I've been able to enlighten your view of the world that you live in and the, and the history of it. So thank you for, for that uh, for that review. Thank you, everyone, for your reviews. They're all uh, very kindly received and they do genuinely help the podcast. If you can't afford to make a, a financial contribution, the best thing you can do to help the podcast along is to write a nice review. Well, that was a lot of um, afters to fit into the podcast, so I'm going to try and sign off now. Um, but what have we got coming up next week? So we have to move forward from the Celt. So the, the the natural direction to head into, a story about the Germanics. And um, I think the best way to cover that will be to analyse those cultures that, took over from the Romans and uh, took over their territories. But before we get there, I want to concentrate on this very, very pivotal battle at Adrianople where the Goths um, challenged the Romans um, at the end of the 4th century. I think it's an absolutely key time and, and, and we should also take a closer look at the Goths, um, such is their legacy we talk about it to this very day. We've got people dressing up as goths in the street. Um, how on earth has that come from just a Germanic tribe of people invading the Romans? Um, we we can probably talk about that. So that will be an interesting episode next week. So we'll look forward to that. Um, thanks for listening this week. 
Uh, don't forget to write in if you want to write in. Don't forget to write in and let me know that you're listening to the podcast. I really do enjoy receiving your messages. And uh, until next week, have a great week, everyone. And make sure that you be good. Do you want more from the History of the World podcast? Then visit our website, historyoftheworldpodcast.com. You can join our discussion forum and find us on social media. Support the podcast for as little as $1 per month by clicking the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. The best ones will be read out. Be sure to rate and review the show wherever you listen to us.